0: Welcome to Pioneers, a five part podcast series featuring one on one conversations with some of Rhode Island's most notable civic leaders. I'm your host, Mary Kim Arnold. Pioneers is produced by the Rhode Island Foundation, the state's largest and most comprehensive funder of nonprofit organizations. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in front of a live audience. I talked with Julie Nora, the director of the International Charter School in Pawtucket, a two-way immersive bilingual charter school serving Rhode Island students in grades K through five. Julie has committed her entire career to advancing bilingual education. We had our conversation in the multipurpose room at her school. Julie, welcome to Pioneers.
1: Thank you.
0: So I wanted to start by talking just a little bit about the school, um, which was founded in 2001, with sponsorship from what was then called the International Institute of Rhode Island. Students who attend select one of two bilingual tracks, either English and Spanish or English and Portuguese. I've heard you say that you approach bilingual education with a benefits, not a deficit approach. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that?
1: Yes. Um, English learners, often when they come to school, are seen for all of the things that they don't do, the deficit orientation, as you said, so that they don't speak English, that their parents weren't educated here. And for us, the fact that they're speakers of Spanish and Portuguese is an asset. The cultural knowledge that they bring with them are assets as well. And that helps us to have our students who are English speaking, for example, learn Spanish or Portuguese and to be exposed to different cultures.
0: And how does it work
1: now? Is it a week? It's a half day, half day. So students in the morning will be learning, for example, in English. And then at midday, they switch to Spanish or Portuguese. Another group will be learning in Spanish or Portuguese in the morning and, and then switch to English in the afternoon. And every week, they switch back and forth.
0: And all subjects in both languages.
1: They're learning everything
0: in the languages, exactly. So to that idea of the asset model, it seems like there are times then that the students for whom Spanish is their native language, say there's a different dynamic possible with their classmates?
1: Yeah, I recall a moment that I was in here, actually where we also served lunch, and a newly arrived student from Mexico was sitting with a student who had been here since kindergarten, and that student was using Spanish with her. And I think that they feel more confident when they see that their Spanish is superior to students that have not lived only in that
0: language. And you've been the school's director for... 16 years, is that right? This is my 16th year, yep. Congratulations, that's wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about some of the highlights of the time that you've been here?
1: When I first started, I think there were 120 students. We now have 370 students. We became an international baccalaureate school this last year, which is a huge lift for teachers and takes what we were doing and I think enhances it in many ways. And I think that the model, what you were just talking about of the asset orientation and a school that is very diverse, students from all sorts of backgrounds, high socioeconomic status, low socioeconomic status, immigrants, families who've been here for many generations, speakers of different languages are are learning together. And I think that the impact that that will have on our communities when they go out into the world is beneficial.
0: So you mentioned the International Baccalaureate, and as you know, both of my children went here, and when my daughter was here, I know that there was early conversations about that. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for the school?
1: An International Baccalaureate is a program that was started in Switzerland, and the idea was that students whose families lived in different parts of the world could have a common educational experience that could help them in getting into colleges. It started at the high school level. The primary goal of their learning is action, that they do something to improve the world and that they are internationally minded and thinking about issues not just in their immediate environment but the the world beyond them.
0: So really understanding themselves as citizens of the world.
1: That's right. Actually, we had an alum come visit last week and I asked him, he's in sixth grade, if he could tell me what are three things that we did well that are helping you be successful. And he said how you raised us to be kind, and the International Baccalaureate Units. And when he started, we had developed some of them, but not all six of them. And I then asked him what something that we could do, could have done better to help you, and he said more International Baccalaureate Units.
0: Um, so I'm going to come back to the school in a minute, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about you and your own education. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? I was uh, born in
1: 1965, the year of the Immigration and Naturalization Act in Los Angeles, um, went to school in what's now Koreatown. And when I look at the class photos from my siblings who were five, nine, and 12 years older than me, it's mostly white students. When, when I look at my class photos, it's very diverse, students from Mexico, African-American students, a lot of students from Korea and the Philippines. That really informed my views on diversity, but the education was spotty. And then I went to an elite independent girls' school, and that provided me with a very consistent, solid education. But it wasn't accessible to all, and it wasn't very diverse. And really what my goals have been always is to try to combine those two things and to create opportunities of educational excellence for all and to do so in a way where students from different backgrounds are working
0: together. I think I've heard you say that this period of time around middle school, is that right?
1: Yes, seventh grade, yeah.
0: So that this was a critical time in your um, development in a lot of ways. Can you speak to
1: that a bit? Yeah, so um, when I was 12, which is the first year that I entered into the independent school, um, I lost my mom, tragically. There were a lot of caring adults in my life, but educators played a really key role for me. I remember Miss Thompson, who was my ninth grade teacher, and the moment of me having an assignment from her that sort of taught me what critical thinking was and then having that tool in my toolkit to be able to use in my personal life.
0: Do you remember what that assignment was?
1: I do remember the assignment. We had to go to the UCLA library and choose from left-leaning periodicals, right-leaning periodicals, and sort of popular articles and research a particular issue. So something like today with climate change or abortion. I remember for the first time thinking, wow, there are different perspectives on issues. And I had always thought, you know, that I had to accept just one perspective.
0: I want to um, stick with this idea of those influences in childhood. So you are talking to your 12-year-old self, What would you want to tell young Julie about what lies ahead?
1: Life is good, and when it's not, it will get better. Never give up an opportunity to go to the beach. (laughs) Um, That friends, um, good friends, are invaluable and become rarer as you get older, so cherish and nurture them.
0: Um, so after high school, you went on to study U.S. intellectual history, as I understand at UC Berkeley. Can you talk a little bit about what that included and what that experience was like?
1: So I mentioned the year that I was born. My t-shirts were the hand-me-downs of my older siblings, which were rock bands, you know, singing about civil rights issues. We had the, the race riots the year that I was born. It was a, a time of lots of changes, days of hope, years of rage. But Going to Berkeley with that sort of set of experiences that, that I had and then at that moment was also very involved with apartheid and it was just a place where there was a lot of political activity. You know, my daughter is about to go off to college next year and I've been reminded as I visited college with her of how many new things you begin to see and experience and living independently and all that it entails. Um, it was very formative for me going to Berkeley.
0: And you stayed in California for a while?
1: Yes, I stayed there and did my master's work there as well, but lived there for 13 years before I came here. And
0: how did you end up coming to Rhode Island? Um, My
1: husband came here for school, and the only thing that he knew about Rhode Island, he's from Venezuela, was from a cartoon he saw as a kid where the bad guy stole it with a
0: helicopter. (laughs) It was part of the marketing campaign at the time. (laughs)
1: Maybe they should turn um, And the only thing that I knew was, you know, just statistics about it being the smallest state and um, had just graduated with a master's in teaching English to speakers of other languages and was convinced California was the only state that had English learners. We were going to be here for one year and go back. Why leave the Bay Area? Um, but it's been now, that was 95, so 23 years.
0: Yeah. So that one year extended yeah, a little bit. Did. Yeah. So now, to, to go back to the school a little bit, um, can you talk a little bit about what Rhode Island was like in 2001, around the time of the school? Were there factors that influenced the founding? Yeah, so the first
1: set of charter schools in Rhode Island prior to that were district charter schools, and then another law was passed that allowed for independent charter schools, and we were in that way. There were fewer charter schools on the landscape. Bill Shuey, who at that time was the executive director of the International Institute, wanted a learning opportunity really for the children of their clients. They work a lot more with adults and so thought that the school would be its own entity that would serve the K-12 population.
0: So there are many ways that I think ICS can be seen as, you know, successful and growing and thriving. And I think sometimes people are curious about what challenges you may have encountered along the way, either, you know, in your own leadership or with the school. Maybe you could talk about one or two of those and how you overcame them. One of the challenges of being a
1: single school charter school of our size is economy of scale. Mm -hmm and so what you want in terms of having a teaching staff that stays in the school and is stays for a long time the costs which are well worth it of that compared to the increases in revenue don't add up and so it becomes more and more expensive so part of our expansion was planned expansion to be go K to 5 um we started K to but then we had to make decisions about expanding class size and, and becoming slightly bigger. And I think that brings new challenges as well in terms of, you know, having more, more students and still having a relatively, or I would say a very lean staff. Mm-hmm. But really thinking about how to balance revenue with cost. I guess I'm not sure if it's a moment in time, but, you know, When I first started, the school was still very new, and so it's building a plane while flying it. You know, really trying to put in place systems to help the school become sustainable. There's always things that come up every day that are surprises and challenging, but, you know, having put in place some of the things that allow for predictability.
0: I think I heard you say this once, but as a charter, you're also your own district, and therefore.
1: And a local education agency, yes.
0: And that adds levels of administrative complexity, is that? It does. So I'm,
1: you know, a superintendent and a principal. So it's a small district, but the reporting that has to happen for the state and all of the interactions outside of the school itself, we're responsible for.
0: And on a sort of more personal level for you as leading the school all of these years, have there been times when, you know, you've... Doubted or thought, oh <laughs> how do you keep yourself going? I truly love coming here
1: every day. Sometimes I joke, you know, if there were no children it would be so easy. But
0: <laughs> she loves all you parents.
1: <laughs> the fact that there are children and adults is what makes it, you know, I from somebody coming and showing me their wiggly tooth to, you know, seeing somebody who who makes great strides or, or hearing about their stories. The students over the years that I've had, not just here, but the interactions you have with students and families and my colleagues, the staff here are amazing. And then, you know, friends and people that are in this profession whom I know and can hang out with and sort of be able to take this journey together.
0: So what do you do for fun?
1: What do I do for fun? Lately, it's been probably reading is what I'm spending most of the time when I'm not here doing. Fun reading? Uh, Fun reading, yeah. (laughs) yeah. No, not professional at all. I've actually had a New Year's resolution to try to read things that were not professional or news related.
0: So one last question about the school before we take some audience questions. How do you think that elementary schools generally can do a better job of preparing students, you know, for the future as global citizens in all the ways that you sort of think about on a regular basis and is there a most critical skill? So I think I'll back up a little bit but I think as a
1: society we could do a much better job of providing more equitable opportunities for all students. The inequities in our state within cities across the country are, are just really unacceptable I think. Um, if you travel to different schools and you just see the facilities or the opportunities and how much they vary. One of the things that I really like about the International Baccalaureate Program is that I think it provides the very skills that students need to be successful. Critical thinking skills, communication skills, uh, developing empathy, thinking about The world beyond themselves. We talk a lot about reading and math, and those are the things that are tested and and sort of publicized. But I think that the skills that students need in order to be successful have a lot to do with their ability to interact and relate to others.
0: And I guess I'm thinking um, about where we started in that dynamic that's so critical to the two-way immersion model, that their ability to see themselves as agents and actors of change of having some abilities and power i think that is one of the things that is so interesting to me about this model
1: we had a parent speak at one of our graduations and her son was in was an english speaking student and she said that when he was in second grade and that's when we still had the week to week model that he um, would complain on Mondays of Spanish Week and that he said that it was hard and he didn't understand it and she wondered if it made sense to send him to this immersion program. And that at that point, he was in fifth grade and she had just had the parent-teacher conference with his Spanish teacher and the teacher said that the only thing that uh, she um, had to complain about was that he talked too much. And the mom said, is he talking in Spanish or English? And she said, Spanish. And she said, well, that's not a problem for me. (laughs) And that um, that he had come a long way in terms of his ability to use Spanish, but that the skills that he gained in terms of understanding what it meant to learn another language and become part of another culture is something that he couldn't have learned really anyplace else. And I think, you know, that's sort of what is at the heart of that asset orientation. He's looking at kids who are native speakers of Spanish or kids who come in bilingual. We have so many of them who, you know, are not often given the credit for what that entails, and it, it really is an incredible feat.
0: I mean, that emphasis on empathy and interconnectedness, I think we could all use (laughs) to know more of that. Um, So I have a a few questions from the audience. That's all right. You ready? Let's see. Uh, So Soraya asks, what responsibility do you see schools having to ensure their staff is culturally aware? Should they provide that education as part of professional development?
1: You know, it's interesting because sometimes I get asked that question and yes, I think that they should be provided that. One of the things that I also love about ICS is that our staff is very much representative of our school community, and so only 35% of my staff have English as their first language. In a dual-language program where they're teaching in Spanish and Portuguese and English, it's required, really, it's, an, it's a, a difficult challenge given the pipeline issues, but it's a huge benefit, and so we we have a very diverse staff. And as a community, you then are like the students developing those skills of interacting with each other.
0: So the learning happens in a lot of different ways. Carlos would like to know, Did ICS? Oh, is ICS planning for a state-of-the-art school and expanding to other grades? ICS has been
1: planning for that for a long time. <laughs> we would love to expand. We have permission from the Department of Education to become a K-8 school, Um, We are the only public school with an IB program now and there is one at the Prout School in South Kingston but there's no middle years program and we would love to fill that gap in the continuum as well as there's very little language teaching that happens in middle school so we would like to provide that opportunity for our students to continue to learn language and we have amazing plans for what that will look like and have faced some challenges with finding a facility but indeed would
0: love to. So stay tuned for that, right. And Chad would like to know, how can charter schools more effectively transfer their innovative teaching and learning techniques back into the public education system?
1: I think it's through partnerships. And a few years ago, we worked with some of the two districts that had just started uh, dual language programs with Pawtucket and with South Kingston. From them, we also learned a lot. They have bigger economy of scale, more resources and more programs, for example, So I think there are ideas that are incubated here that indeed should be shared and considered in different contexts because it's not always the same context, but it also provides opportunities for us to learn from them.
0: So we're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to give you a chance if there's anything that I should have asked or an answer that you have that you wanted to share before we wrap up.
1: We've seen in recent years, I just referenced it, but the growth of dual language programs in Pawtucket and South Kingston. And I just hope that more schools, I would love to see a statewide initiative where more schools were providing language education at a, a young age. For native speakers of languages that are not English, we sort of teach it out of them. And then when they get to high school, tell them they need to learn another language. And for native speakers of English, we wait until they're in high school and then, you know, have them learn another language. And in both cases, we often isolate students. And so the English learners are learning all together without native speaking peers. And in foreign language classes in high school, we often don't have any native speakers except perhaps sometimes a teacher. So I think this model of starting young, being the first impression of what school can be, I would love to see it expand across the state.
0: Before I let you go, as you probably know, we do uh, one last thing called the lightning round. Um, so these are just quick answers off the top of your head. Are you ready? <laughs> what is your idea of perfect happiness?
1: Soaking in a hot spring under the stars.
0: Dogs or cats? Dogs. Greater fear, deep space or deep underwater?
1: I'm kind of happy here. Can I say both? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, If you had to choose. Deep water. What do you value most in your friends?
1: Intellectual curiosity and honesty.
0: What is your favorite word or phrase? If. Is there a word or phrase that you most dislike? You can't. If your career hadn't worked out the way it did, what would you be doing instead?
1: I always thought I wanted to be a bridge engineer. Why? I don't know. And I don't know that I'd be good at it either, (laughs) but
0: I just... I love bridges. Julie, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for hosting us here at the International Charter School.
1: To you, too. And thank you.
0: You've been listening to Pioneers, produced by the Rhode Island Foundation and brought to you by the Civic Leadership Fund an annual fund that broadens the scope and increases the responsiveness of the foundation's traditional philanthropy. Our show is edited by Megan Hall, sound design and theme music by Tom Van Buskirk. To support efforts like this one, please visit rifoundation.org.